I, have, I haven't been a bird for some time, so I need to ask you the question. How are you? Are you okay? The letters, are you okay? Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to be still and come under your word. We believe that your word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It speaks to our situation. It challenges us, it equips us, and empowers us. And we humbly pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to our hearts and to our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. I trust this uh, mini-sermon series on what is the book two of the book of Psalms, the Psalter. I trust that this series is a source of spiritual encouragement as we lead up to Mission Sunday in two weeks' time. The psalm that we're going to meditate on this morning, Psalm 44, is a lament. And in many ways, lamenting is part and parcel of being a follower of Jesus. If you look at the superscription to the psalm, which is the first verse in the Hebrew, the psalm is described as a maskil, which we believe means it's a contemplative psalm. And if we look at the, the psalm, and maybe you picked this up as Robin read the psalm for us, there's an interchange between the first person singular I and the first person plural. And so it, it seems to indicate the psalm is both uh, an individual psalm, a cry from the heart of an individual, but also the lament of the community acting as one. When was the last time you lamented? Have you ever lamented? The General Assembly of Australia was just held last week. And when you read the Australian Presbyterian, which is the official magazine of the Presbyterian Church of Australia, I understand it's only available online. A very good rap is given to the pastor who gave the General Assembly expositions. And I think you know that pastor very well. But during the General Assembly, uh, I met a friend who came up from Melbourne. And I asked him about a mutual friend. And he said to me, I was completely unaware, that this mutual friend, also a Presbyterian minister, going through the hardship of dealing with the fact that his son committed suicide. When was the last time you lamented? I saw on Facebook the other day the publication of a new commentary on Ephesians. It's in the Pillar series. That's the one with blue and white uh, cover. And it's written by, uh, I call him Con Campbell, but I think everyone now calls him by his full name, Constantine Campbell. He was, uh, used to be a more college lecturer, and then he was lecturing in uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School uh, in um, Illinois. He's back in Australia. And he's got this new commentary. And the Notification about this commentary pays a lot of respect to a former lecturer at Moore College called Peter O'Brien. Peter O'Brien wrote many New Testament commentaries. And some years ago, he was falsely accused of plagiarism. And using the technology of several years ago, scanning tools, P. 
picking up words and phrases and even sentences. It was argued he plagiarised and all his books were taken off the shelf. All his books were taken off library shelves. I think they may be in the library upstairs, but many libraries around the world, all the books were taken off and they were pulped. He was expunged. And of course, it wasn't plagiarism. Perhaps he was a little bit uh, less careful in writing the commentary from his notes because he, he reflected words and phrases other scholars had used. When was the last time you lamented? As disciples of Jesus, we understand that at times, not always, God's righteous may well suffer loss, defeat, rejection, shame, unjust attacks and so on. But when these situations happen, how do you and I face them? Now, some people refer to uh, what I term cause and effect theology. How are you? How are you spiritually? Now, if you're doing well, if you're successful in what you do, it might be concluded, it's because you've been faithful and obedient, cause and effect. And there used to be a term Christians use, we don't hear it these days, it's called victorious Christian living. That is, as a disciple of Jesus, you study the word of God and you go through spiritual disciplines and you reach a certain level of so-called spirituality, you enjoy a more blessed life. And that's why people go to all these conferences. In, in Victoria, they go to Belgrave Heights Conference. And uh, I won't say which mountain place people go to in New South Wales for such conferences. But if you're experiencing defeat, loss, rejection, unjust attacks, and so on, people might well say, ah, it's because of your sin. Yes, we had confession of sin earlier on in the service when Chong led us, but they will, the person will go on to say, perhaps it's a sin you're not conscious of. Well, let me give you an example of so-called cause and effect theology because the Bible does give us some uh, examples. If you look at the book of Kings and you talk about, uh, look at the uh, breaking up of the kingdom uh, after Solomon to the northern kingdom Israel and southern kingdom Judah, uh, the book of Kings focuses on one particular king, Jeroboam. And you, you see the sentence again and again that all the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, are tarred with this saying, they followed the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. And we know that in the year 722 BC, the northern king was exiled to Assyria. And that was a direct result of the sin of Jeroboam and the subsequent kings of Israel. But what about your situation? If after thorough and honest searching, you and I are not aware of any unconfessed sin, we're sort of like Job. If there were sin, we would have confessed it, but we can't find sin. And we've even asked God, show me, God, where have I sinned? Or you might come to the conclusion, and people might have suggested this to us, maybe God wants you to go through this situation because he wants to show you something. He wants to teach you something. And then we're 
encouraged to direct our energies, our emotions into discerning. If only I can find out what God's will is, what God's purpose, what lesson he wants to teach me, then I can cope. Cause and effect theology. It sounds simple. It sounds neat. We're experiencing the present challenge, the present unpleasant situation as a direct result of sin. We're experiencing this present challenge because God wants to reveal something to us. It seems to make sense. But let me warn you that it's very close to the problem of putting God in a box. Uh, I'm going to introduce you to a technical term. It's spelled T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. Theodicy. And theologians like to invent words, and it's, it's sort of like a, a defense or a justification or, or an explanation of God's goodness and his omnipotence. God's in control. That's how we began uh, our service uh, uh, with the opening hymn, that God's in control. It's a, it's a defense of God's goodness and his omnipotence in view of the, of the existence of evil. But it's not as straightforward as that. I began by asking, how are you? Did you answer? Most of us put on masks when we relate to one another because we want people to relate to the persona of the mask that we put on. And we keep our true self to ourselves. I don't want to alarm people who made a big decision in life yesterday, but once you get married, the masks begin to come off. You'll get a shock. Why do we put on masks? Because we want to be accepted by others. But we put on a mask with other brothers and sisters in Christ because we want to project a persona that our spiritual health is not bad. So statistically speaking, amongst us who are here this morning, there are some of us who will be crying inside, lamenting inside, but none of us are aware of it because you're putting on a mask. It could be a relationship problem with a family member, colleague at work, or business partner. It could be a financial problem, overstretched with a mortgage, investments going south, a health problem. Maybe the medical experts, after extensive tests, still can't diagnose what's really wrong with it, let alone decide on what is the right course of uh, medical treatment. Or maybe the sudden death of a loved one or an unexpected miscarriage. Or rejection of your proposal at work, despite all the hard work you put in to this proposal. Or it could be unjust victimization. You become the scapegoat at work or in your family circle because you're the only believer. Now we know that in the Bible, again and again, we are taught to trust God and be patient and persevere. And Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, one of the fruits of the Spirit is forbearance. But let me ask you, is it possible to implicitly and unconditionally trust God at all times in everything? That's what Psalm 44 precisely encourages us to do, to implicitly and unconditionally trust God at all times. The psalm has uh, four sections, 
and you could see this reflected in the outline. I should hasten to point the two typos, unconditional is misspelt, and the first point should be verses 1 to 8, not 18. When you and I are in the midst of a storm of life or an earthquake in life or a tsunami in life, we should, like the psalmist, meditate on God's past faithfulness. Let me read again verses 1 to 3. We have heard it with our ears, O God. Our ancestors have told us what you did in their days. In days long ago, with your hand you drove out the nations and planted our ancestors. You crushed the peoples and made our ancestors flourish. It was not by their sword that they had won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right arm and the light of your face, for you loved them. Looking back to the past, the people of God flourished. And one of the reasons, for God loved them. God's love was shown in real and practical ways. And this is the psalmist in the present. God, don't you want us to flourish now? Don't you still love us? And he's referring to the exodus and wilderness wandering and the conquest of Canaan, sort of as one historical event. Because this was the establishing of Israel as God's chosen people and being placed in God's promised land. And verses 1 to 3 talk about victory for Israel was given by God. It wasn't the might of their soldiers. And if you look at it from a historical point of view, you have a nomadic people after 40 years wandering in the desert, attacking and defeating sophisticated city dwellers living in walled cities. The victory was God's, given to them. And it was through God's own right hand and arm, which is a way of saying God personally fought the battles for the Israelites. We've often heard the phrase, we should learn from history. And this is what the psalmist actually is saying without directly verbalizing it. Because after they had conquered um, the city of Jericho, do you remember? They marched around the city according to uh, God's um, command. The next city or town they were going to uh, uh, attack is Ai. And they were defeated soundly. And we are told they were defeated because of the sin of one man, the sin of Achan. So the psalmist is aware of this. There was a defeat, and it was cause and effect. But the psalmist is saying, that was them. That was that generation. But our generation, there is no sin, there is no disobedience, there is no unfaithfulness. What about us? As you look in the past, can you testify that God has uh, acted decisively uh, in your own life? Perhaps provided you with a job, led you to a life partner, provided you with housing. It came on the market because the uh, vendor had to sell. Or God provided for your study fees through an anonymous donor, as happened to some of my friends. God answered prayer for healing. You see, as believers in a great God, we should not be surprised when God acts decisively and miraculously in our lives. 
and also in the lives of our loved ones. But the point that Psalmist is making is that God does not change. He remains faithful. Therefore, we should not doubt that he remains faithful today, even though the psalmist is facing a storm. But you and I need to pay attention to the context of the psalmist. That is his relationship with God. He has a personal, intimate relationship. What about us? When was the last time you had face time with God? It's quite clear the psalmist has an intimate, personal relationship with God. Let me read again verses 4 and 8. You are my king and my God, who decrees victories for Jacob, though... Sorry, through you, we push back our enemies. Through your name, we trample our foes. I put no trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God, we make our boast all day long, and we praise your name forever. So the psalmist is not trusting his own resources. He refers to God as my king. He's in God's control of everything in his life. My God, it's through you, through your name. And what does he do? Spontaneous praise of God. Even though he's going through a storm. And it's sort of like the um, response of Job. Remember Job? Job one twenty one. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Sermon title is, uh, In God We Trust. It's the official motto of which country? The United States of America. And believe it, we have some North Americans here, but they're not from the United States of America. But it's also, I discovered, um, the motto of the state of Florida. And the psalmist is probably wondering, will God provide an exodus event or a way out? Um, and I think in the, in the outline I've, I've referred to 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, which reads, No temptation, that means trial or testing, has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted, that means tested, beyond what you can bear, and when you are tempted, that is tested, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. In verse 11, the psalmist says, You have scattered us among the nations. So it seems probable that the historical context it was that the psalm envisages the situation of the exiles in Babylon in the 6th century BC. And we know that, according to the prophecy given to the prophets, Jeremiah and Isaiah in particular, there was a second exodus. God provided not just a way out, a way through, but a way back. Now, You and I might be facing a challenge at the moment, a storm in life. And God may well provide an excess event for us. But the point of Psalm 44 is that even if God chooses not to give us an excess event, will we still trust in his faithfulness? Because how are we going to face defeat, loss, shame, rejection, and so on for the sake of God's name? Let me read again verses uh, 9 to 16. 
But you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy, and, your, and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. You have made us a reproach to our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. The people shake their heads at us. I live in disgrace all day long. And my face is covered with shame at the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who is bent on revenge. I live in disgrace all day long and my face is covered with shame. That's verse 15. Now, in modern pop psychological terms, it's talk, talking about self-worth. Because quite often we ask the question, how are you? It's, how do you feel about yourself? What's your self-worth? Because in reality, like the psalmist, there may be times we feel as if we are abandoned by God. And it's a conflict. Because we're thinking, aren't we precious in God's sight? And I've just read verses 9 to 16. But you look in terms of the grammar, the syntax, it's what we call causative language. God doesn't just allow things to happen. He doesn't just allow things to happen and then uses the events to mould us, to shape us, to guide us, to lead us. For, a pa- for example, a parent watching a young child beginning to walk allows the child to stumble and fall. That's not God in these verses. It's causative language. You have rejected us. You have humbled us. You no longer go with us. You made us retreat before the enemy. You gave us up to be devoured. You sold us. You have made us a reproach. You have made us a byword among the nations. You see, nothing happens apart from God's purpose. And the point of this psalm is, are we willing to trust that purpose even though God may not, in his wisdom, choose to reveal what that purpose is? You see, the psalmist is asking many questions. And Pastor Eugene, uh, during the catechism, mentioned the Psalms. We don't know what to pray. Well, pray, pray the Word of God. Pray the Psalm. The Psalmist may be raising the questions you may be raising. But the Psalmist really doesn't offer answers. And can we continue on going? As a disciple of Jesus, as God's chosen people, when there appear to be no answers given by God, can we still trust in God when we are crushed? And in the third part of the psalm, the psalmist gives us this spiritual context. Let me read again verses 17 to 22. All this came upon us, uh, though we had not forgotten you. We had not been forced to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back, our feet had not strayed from your path, but you crushed us and made us a horn for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it? Since he knows the secrets of the heart, yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. we began by looking a little bit at cause and effect theology, and I mentioned Job. 
In the book of Job, we are told repeatedly that Job was blameless. But his friends, the three plus one friends, kept on saying, but you must have sinned. Just don't be a fool. Just fess up and it'll be all right. Well, look at the psalmist. He was faithful, or the community was faithful, and to God's covenant and blameless. They could say they were blameless because they had dared to say God knows the secrets of the heart. And covenantal language is used in the verses I've just read, verses 70 to 22. And if you know the wider teaching of the Old Testament or the teaching of the Bible as a whole, as to who the true Israelite is, true Israel within Israel, the faithful remnant, in terms of Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah 4, and of course Romans 2 in the New Testament, for this psalmist and for his community, it was circumcision of the heart. They had a real authentic relationship with God. We had not forgotten you. The converse of forgetting is remember. And uh, in the Old Testament, in, in covenant passages, it's God always remembering, remembering. We had not been forced to your covenant. That's black and white. A declaration of covenant faithfulness. Our hearts had not turned back. And that's a key word uh, in the Old Testament, turning. And that, that's the, the message of the prophets. Turn back to God. And here, the psalmist said, we have not turned back away from God to false idols. Our feet had not strayed from the path. Is anyone here called Derek? No? Anyone called Derek? Yes. Thought so. Our nephew is called Derek. You know, that's a Hebrew word. It's a Hebrew word for path, and it's a very key word. Very key word in, in Psalm 1. talks about the wave. Have you studied moments in physics? You know, mass times the distance and calculate the moments. It's all right. Our feet are not straight from the path. I mentioned Psalm 1. The way or the path of the righteous is compared to the way or the path of the wicked. And so the psalmist is crystal clear. There's no sin. On the contrary, he and the community have been faithful. Can we still trust God when we're crushed? In fact, crushed by God. You crushed us. You made us a horn for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. How might you and I face a double whammy at the same time when we're seeking to be faithful and obedient to God? Let me give you an example. Young man lost his job after being falsely accused. It was politically motivated, of course. He was expendable. He was the only Christian in the team. But at the same time, his girlfriend suddenly broke off their relationship. And you know what reason they broke up? Don't answer this question. It's a rhetorical question. Why do young men and young women break up their relationship? Think about the reasons. Well, in this case, she broke it up because she had a different calling to him. She had a different leading from God for her, for her life. My friend felt called to be a missionary to Japan, and he went to Japan eventually. But she, this, this woman, felt called to, to Nepal. She, she said, well, that's it. You're not the one for me. So he had to deal with this at the same time losing his job. How might you and I face a double whammy at the same time? 
when like the psalmist, like the community of Psalm 44, we're seeking to be faithful and obedient to God. It's interesting when you look at Romans, we just did a sermon series in Romans. At the end of Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 31 to 39, Paul says, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And he cites that we are like sheep for slaughter. So he's actually citing this psalm. And it's the context of nothing can separate us from the love of Christ in our Lord, uh, Christ Jesus our Lord. And this psalm speaks about God's love. Verse 3, for you love them. And the very last verse, because of your unfailing love. You see, for the Apostle Paul, it was never academic. It was never so-called theological and, and, uh, and cerebral. He often faced a double whammy or triple whammy type situation. And if you look at his um, uh, testimony in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, for the love of Christ, hard to translate this, but the NIV has compels us, for the love of Christ compels us, or the love of Christ drives us on, or the love of Christ pushes us on, urges us on, gives us no choice but to live for Christ. The psalmist knows deep down he needs to continue trusting God. And that's what this psalm is encouraging you and me to do in our situation today. But the reality is we often hesitate. We often hesitate in pouring out our lament to God. We hesitate in asking God to intervene in the psalms that we face in life. The last few verses, the psalmist does that. Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust, our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love, verses 23 to 26. We commence the service with the hymn, God is Able. And how does the, that means he's sovereign. He's completely in control. Nothing happens outside of his will, his plan. And the chorus has the words, lifted up, he defeated the grave. You see, it's the cross we see the love of God, and it's the cross we are assured of victory. And I think the second song we, we, we sang the words, all of my life in every season, you are still God. So what season of life are you in now? God hasn't changed. The world around us has changed. Maybe inwardly we've changed. And if you're very observant, you're seeing less of me. You can Google that, whatever that means. Um, the medicos know what that means. You're seeing less of me. And hopefully the next time you see me, you'll see even less of me. All of my life in every, in every season, you are still God. And I think we're going to close with the song, Power of Your Love. Is that right? And that song used to be sung by our pastor with the guitar when he was young, you know. That's when, that's when I first learned that song, coming back from overseas. Uh, but the power of your love, if you look carefully at the words, they, they take some of the phrases from the book of Isaiah. It's about the second exodus. 
So I think very appropriate. Why is it we often hesitate to ask God to intervene as we face the storms of life? Well, the psalmist says, don't hesitate. Ask. You'll be surprised how God will answer in his time. I want to conclude by uh, uh, reading a quotation from a book by Kelly Capick. The book's entitled uh, Embodied Hope, A Theological Meditation on Pain and Suffering. So it's talking more about pain and suffering and, and not storms of life in general, but it's very, this quotation I think is very appropriate. We're, we all have honest questions as we stand before God. Why? How come? What does this mean? When will it end? Such questions are not only understandable, but healthy. Despite widespread misconceptions, Christian spirituality is not stoicism. Stoicism is like stiff upper lip. Or like the Javanese man, somebody stomps on their foot in a crowded bus, and the Javanese man says, Oh, Sukunipun? Sukunipun is high-level Javanese. Oh, your foot. Stiff upper lip stoicism. Heartfelt cries and existential questions operate at the core of healthy theology and suppressing them is more hurtful than a confession of ignorance. So I want to encourage you all to hold on. Hold on. Hold on to God's love. And in the Old Testament, there is a word that's used for God's love, and often in context of God's covenant relationship. So I resisted the temptation to use somebody's name, so we have an acronym. Actually, I, I, I was given suggestions, so, but uh, that's for the next time. An acronym of the word love to help us understand uh, the, the word that the Bible uses. Uh, in English, sometimes it's translated, as we have in the NIV, unfailing love. Sometimes it's translated as steadfast love, sometimes as loving kindness. Um, and so L-O-V-E, L, loyal, faithful. It's not going to change. Other persons said, God genuinely is concerned for us, our needs, our situations, our hurts, and so on. It's vast. There's, there's no limit. His love can embrace us. And it's eternal. It never changes. Hold on. Hold on to God. Hold on to God's love. Amen.